Very good morning to you all, you wonderful people. Uh, before we begin, while you're getting the rest of your coffee, why don't you watch, uh, why don't you watch this? Every 30 seconds, a child is trafficked. The girl behind me, called Mina, uh, she is about six years old. Uh, she was rescued by the local church from being trafficked across the border a year ago. One day I was playing with my friend when a man came and took me. He held my hand and took me away. A lady who was known to my family in Nepal said to my mother, I can get her a job in India. I was just a child. I didn't know I was being brought into this brothel. I was so young. I didn't know anything about the darkness of this world and the kind of things people did. They used to force me into this work and I used to tell them, please don't do this with me. But they never listened. They said, you have been bought. A price has been paid. About half of the population in my country, Nepal, is covered by children. So we are helping the children by strengthening the church and mobilizing them in their own community. And also telling the people about the risks of trafficking, doing the awareness campaigns in village to villages, helping the women, giving them the training on business skills so that these women are generating income for their family as well as for the children to afford them to the school. I have four boys and four girls. If I hadn't got the training and learned about trafficking, my children would definitely have been taken. Now they can stay here go to school and have proper food. A few years ago, many of the women and children from our community were being trafficked to Mumbai into the brothels. Now the people are more aware and now they say we will protect our children. Every 30 seconds, a child is trafficked. Since the making of this film, two earthquakes have hit Nepal. Human traffickers don't stop for disaster, they seize their chance. In Nepal, this is happening. They're targeting one million children made vulnerable by the quakes. Due to the earthquake, almost 80% of the houses have completely broken down and 20% uh, of the houses have also been cracked and uh, people are very scared to go in. When I was talking with some of the people over here, um, they were telling that their school has been damaged all. Around 500 children are there. Now they, they don't have the school. So uh, it, it may be very dangerous for the children that, uh, that the traffickers may be quite active uh, in this place. So when, when the children are in their shelter or, or uh, playing, may, uh, these children may be taken away. So we are very concerned about it and uh, now uh, today as we are uh, distributing the uh, relief material uh, around 20 church volunteers have been mobilized and after that uh, our hope is to train more 
to these church volunteers and keep eye on every children so they can be protected. We urgently need to protect children in Nepal and worldwide. So, there you have a great video put together by um, Tear Funders. You know, um, I have recently come back from a, a trip, which I wanted to talk about this morning, um, with a Tear Fund in uh, to Mumbai and Nepal. Did you see what that woman uh, said at the beginning? That you've been bought, a price has been paid. Interesting how the... Um, the traffickers, the, the, the pimps, the madams use just the language of um, redemption <laughs> to claim uh, ownership. In uh, 1875, uh, this enormous cloud rolled in across um, St. Clair County in Missouri in the, in the U.S. There was this vast cloud that uh, it, it completely blocked out the, sand, uh, the, the sun. It descended upon the land and destroyed every last shred of uh, crops and vegetation. And what it was was literally trillions of locusts weighing more than 27 million tons who were swarming over an area of 200,000 uh, square miles across the American Midwest. It's an area larger than the state of California and the locusts destroyed everything. And every single day they consumed the same uh, as what two and a half million people would eat. The locusts ate um, fence posts. They ate the uh, paint from the side of houses. They ate the wool off the back of live sheep. They ate the clothes that were hanging out on the washing line. Families, uh, farmers quickly, hurriedly ran outside and threw blankets over their gardens to protect uh, their uh, crops and plants, and the locusts devoured the blankets and then devoured the plants and the crops that were underneath them. And these settlers, these families, watched as literally as, as everything that they'd worked for, everything that they'd hoped for, uh, lay ruined and destroyed in the wake of this plague. International Justice Mission, uh, IJM, Director, their director, uh, Gary Horgan, who some of you will have um, heard of, he's written this exceptional book, which I'd encourage you to read if you can. It's called The Locust Effect. And uh, in this book, what he does is he says that this same locust effect is wreaking devastation across the world today, whether it's in the form of injustice, whether it's in the form of poverty, whether it's in the form of sex trafficking, whether it's in the form of slavery. Innocent lives of uh, those made in the image of God are falling prey to the plagues of poverty and injustice. If you've got a Bible, um, turn with me to Isaiah, Isaiah chapter 58. I just want to look at, it's a very familiar um, passage that I want us to just use this morning as a bit of a, a, bit of a backdrop, if you like, a bit of a framework uh, to some of the things that I'm going to be talking to you about. So um, Isaiah uh, 58, we'll start in verse 6, I think. Is not this the kind of fasting I've chosen? It's Lent. Is, the, is, the, is not this the kind of fasting I've chosen? To loose the chains of injustice and untie the cords of the yoke to set the oppressed free and break every yoke? 
Is it not to share your food with the hungry and to provide the poor wanderer with shelter? When you see the naked, to clothe them and not to turn away from your own flesh and blood. Then your light will break forth like the dawn and your healing will quickly appear. Then your righteousness will go before you and the glory of the Lord will be your rear guard. Then you will call and the Lord will answer. You will cry for help and he will say, here am I. If you do away with the yoke of oppression, with the pointing finger and malicious talk, and if you spend yourselves on behalf of the hungry and satisfy the needs of the oppressed, then your light will rise in the darkness and your night will become like the noonday. The Lord will guide you always. He will satisfy your needs in a sun-scorched land and will strengthen your frame. You will be like a well-watered garden, like a spring whose waters never fail. Your people will rebuild the ancient ruins and will raise up the age-old foundations. You will be called repairers of broken walls, restorer of streets with dwellings. I don't know about you, but sometimes it can feel, the, it feels like the chains of injustice, it can feel like the needs of the oppressed are so overwhelming, they're so overwhelming, we just, sometimes they just don't even know where to begin, don't even know where to start. And, and that was certainly my feeling uh, going on this trip with Tear Fund uh, to India uh, and Nepal. And you know as a church we've been supporting Tear Fund uh, particularly uh, in the wake of the earthquakes that devastated uh, Nepal uh, a year ago in April. And, and me and some other vineyard pastors, we'd been invited as Tear Fund's uh, guests to go and see the work that they uh, were doing uh, there in and through the local uh, church and to see how communities were being rebuilt and lives were being uh, restored. And we went to these places, and as we traveled um, time and time and time and time again, what we saw, what struck me was, um, rather than seeing a people overwhelmed by their circumstances, by their situation, which being in those situations, being in those circumstances, you would have completely forgiven them for feeling overwhelmed. But rather than encountering people who were overwhelmed, we kept coming across, we kept encountering a people full of hope even in the midst of darkness, time and time again. And uh, sometimes in the, in the darkest, most um, hopeless of places that certainly I've ever been, uh, we saw people making a difference. We saw people making a huge difference. We saw people sharing their food with the hungry. We, we saw people uh, providing the poor wanderer with shelter, clothing um, the naked. And although, certainly again from my experience, these were some of the darkest, most depraved places um, I've ever been. In every place that we went to, we saw light rising in the darkness. We saw um, the night becoming like the midday. And it was remarkable. And this morning what I wanted to do, uh, many of you have been asking me, and so um, I thought it was easier just to do it in one fell swoop. Um, just to give you a bit of an update on this uh, trip, tell you some of the things and some of the stories of the things that we saw, really, uh, really to give us hope, really to give us a sense of hope and that sense that 
that in the midst of hopelessness, in the midst of what can seem overwhelming, what can seem like incredibly difficult and dark places, the local church is present and active. The local church is present and active. The Spirit of God is at work. The redemptive power of the resurrection of Jesus is transforming lives. And God's light is rising in the midst of even the greatest darkness. So I want to uh, encourage you all um, this morning in the way that I've come back um, challenged, certainly, um, overwhelmed a little bit, uh, but generally hugely encouraged. We started off uh, our trip in Mumbai. I don't know if any of you have been to Mumbai. Mumbai is like a, is a city like no other. It's like 20 million people who are jam-packed in together, and it seems that every single one of those 20 million people are doing life on the street all at once in all its forms. Um, and uh, there is nothing that you won't see. It's, it's a city. The noise and the chaos is, is, is literally overwhelming. The, the sights and the smells are overpowering. Um, and the whole of life can be seen in just a few steps. Um, you're, you, can, you can see everything just in a, in a few paces. Along one stretch of road, you've got whole families living under um, plastic sheeting, cooking their supper on the, literally right on the street. Uh, and they find themselves across the road from the world's most expensive private residence. It's a $2 billion house. It's 27 stories high. It's got six floors designated to parking. It's got two helicopter pads. It has 300 staff, and it's for one family. Uh, so Mumbai is a city of extremes, and um, we started out in the extreme depths of its notorious red light district. Um, and uh, we were there in the red light district, which wasn't really somewhere I'd ever particularly imagined to find myself as a pastor of a church, um, and certainly not ever imagined to find myself with my 17-year-old son. Um, being in a red light district, when pimps are encouraging your son to come and um, have sex with the women, um, elicits a mix of responses um, in a father. One was, I think I'm going to be physically sick. And secondly, I think I'm going to punch somebody um, really hard. Um, so we were there in this red light district. Um, it was in the evening. We were prayer walking through the streets. And, and we'd been there earlier on in the day. But as we were there in the evening, the, the whole atmosphere of this place um, changed dramatically. And uh, literally as the night began to fall, this much more sinister, this much deeper darkness kind of came with it. Uh, and... You're on these crowded streets, the sort of things that look like this. Um, this is a very, very, very poor area of Mumbai. And suddenly, out of nowhere, literally dozens and dozens of girls, uh, some no more than 16, can't have been more than 16, uh, uh, standing alongside women who are old enough to be their grandmothers. Um, they're literally lining the streets, lining the streets, blocking uh, both the pavements, blocking uh, both the gutters, um, and they're just selling themselves. They're just selling themselves. And, um, and you're, we were there, and you've got this strange, again, so much contrast, so much 
um, extreme because you've got these women who have gone and spent time. They're beautifully dressed. They've spent time to carefully adorn themselves. And so you've got this stark contrast between these beautifully adorned and beautifully attired women and these um, really, really slovenly and sinister male pimps who are trying to get us to purchase one of the women for the night. And um, these, li- these literally kind of, um, these, these, these narrow, dark streets, they, 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 they're heaving. Just the whole sense of the place um, is that there's something fundamentally broken here. There's something that's just this, this sense of brokenness and uh, just a fragmented, hopeless, um, captive sons and daughters of the living God. You're walking amongst these children of God. And there's this vague, maybe, there's this vague sense that, you know, um, there might be this memory and this distance of their true calling. This distant recollection that perhaps um, this isn't who we are. This isn't who we're called to be. This isn't our true identity. But it, it, it looked like it's become such a faint echo you know, that there might perhaps have once been this place, long since uh, forgotten, long since lost, where we, are, we were actually destined for more than this. And it's, heart, it's heartbreaking. It's abs- as you can imagine, it's absolutely heartbreaking. It's heartbreaking being in a place, we, we were in the brothels, we were walking into the brothels, and um, it, it was like being in um, medieval England, I don't imagine. I don't know. And you're walking into brothels where... Um, there's no light. Um, the stench of urine is overwhelming. Um, it's pitch black. Uh, you're, you're stepping on stairs that feel like they're about to collapse. And the rooms in these brothels are like, um, they're like steel containers for um, container lots. There are no windows. The rooms are the size of um, beds. There's no floor space. Um, it's absolute squalor. And yet this is the place that the men are going to have sex. And this incredible contrast, the counterfeit nature of these places, whereby the thing that God had intended for good, this, this, this wonderful treasured gift of sex that God has intended, is being so counterfeitly um, uh, ruined and spoiled and degraded in these places. And it's, it's, it's heartbreaking just from a, purely from a humanitarian perspective, and it's certainly heartbreaking when we understand who it is that God has called us to be. So we're walking around these whole fragmented, broken, seemingly irretrievable communities, um, robbed of their inheritance. And, 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 and no one seems to notice. No one seems to care. These are um, literally people of no value. The people with no value to, certainly not to government, certainly not to the police. And the people who um, only seem to care are, are actually the Christians. And uh, the Christians who are there um, working with Tear Fund, working with others, literally compelled by faith to be this prophetic voice in the wilderness. Um, a lone voice, they're literally like a lone voice going into this dark place and saying, um, prepare ye the way of the Lord. And what they're saying is, when the Lord comes, he, he comes for such as these. So they're saying, when the Lord came, he came for such as these. And they're being that prophetic voice. 
um, Usha uh, told us her story. Uh, she uh, told us the story of how she'd been um, sold as an 11-year-old girl from Goa to Mumbai. Uh, I think she'd ended up um, trafficked and working in a, in a carpet factory, as is often the case with the children, because their fingers are so small, they're able to tie the knots, sufficient number of knots to make the carpet more valuable. Um, she'd been told that she'd got a great job. She'd, told, she'd been told that she'd be looked after and that then she could return back to her family. Um, but when she said that she wanted to leave, they just laughed at her and said, uh, you can't go anywhere. You haven't paid back your debt. Um, you've been bought. A price has been paid. And you don't get out of this until you've paid that back. Uh, they say there's often uh, something like 20 stages in the process of someone being trafficked. And at each stage, there's a financial transaction. And that financial transaction then gets heaped up and paid on until the final uh, purchase of the person. And so the debt can be huge. And then um, there are arbitrary interest rates that are um, applied to the debt. Uh, there are food and uh, lodging costs. There are medical expenses. And so um, people can find themselves in debt uh, that they can never pay off. Uh, Usha told us how she'd, um, she found herself in a situation. She cried a lot. She, she stopped eating and I think made herself um, of no use to her current owner. And so she was sold on again um, from the carpet factory and uh, she was sold on to the sex industry where she began to work as a prostitute. Um, she was regularly beaten, uh, she was totally alone, and she ended up working as a prostitute for 10 years. Uh, she managed to pay off her debt, and uh, she did so. And having managed to pay off her debt, she then got married to a man that she loved. And uh, two months into the marriage, she discovered that her husband was a pimp, and that he was trafficking women, and he then um, sold her on as a prostitute again, uh, this time to Delhi. Uh, this time she managed to escape. She had two children with her. Um, she ended up on the streets begging for food. She had no nothing to do, no education, no qualifications, no experience of anything apart from prostitution. So she ended up begging on the streets. Um, everyone around her told her to sell her kids. What she needed to do was to sell her kids. But she, um, she refused. But in order to have income to keep them safe, uh, she went back and ended up back in Mumbai um, and started work as a madam. So she started um, uh, running a, a, a brothel and uh, taking money from the other prostitutes. Um, any money that she had, she, she started using it to raise her children. But as time went by, I think she said the shame and the pain just got so great that she then became um, a drug addict. But she carried on working uh, throughout it all um, until she met someone from Oasis. An oasis um, is uh, uh, one of Tear Fund's partners in Mumbai, and um, they've been working with the women in the red light districts, and they helped her get out of Mumbai just for long enough to go to uh, Pune, I think, and um, get herself clean. Uh, they took her, they helped her, they supported her, they told her about Jesus. They told her about how she'd been created for so much more. They told her about this savior um, who has bought her who has paid a price to set her free. And um, this savior who gave himself so that she might have life in all its fullness. And so Usha, and she gave her life to Jesus. And then what she did with this newfound faith is she asked to go back to Mumbai. 
she asked to go back to Mumbai where she started volunteering uh, with Oasis to help the other uh, women uh, prostitutes get free. And uh, she's now on the staff team there. She's this remarkable woman, um, quite remarkable. And uh, she's so incredibly thankful to God for all that he's done in um, turning her life around. And everyone in the red light district knows everyone. Uh, She was the reason that we were able to get into the brothels and to kind of um, walk around as safely as we were. Everyone knows both her and her story. Uh, She said this, she said, when I was um, a prostitute, she said, the madam took our money, the men took pieces of our soul, but Jesus has given us back our lives. Just an example of light rising in the darkness. One of the projects that she works for um, is the children's shelter um, that Oasis run um, with uh, support and help from the local churches. And this is a children's center that, the, that they run for the children of women working in uh, prostitution. And these are day shelters and night shelters. And, and in them, these kids, I mean, you can see how old these kids are. There, Some of them are, you know, three, four, five upwards. Uh, they worship together, they do their homework, uh, they eat a decent meal, they play games. They're just ordinary, the most ordinary normal kids that you'd ever come across. Um, but if they weren't there, they'd be sleeping under the beds while their mums entertain their clients. Um, another thing that she does, she works on the teams with the nighttime patrols. Um, what happens in Mumbai is in the very early hours of the morning, teams go to Mumbai um, central uh, city central stations because every day literally scores of children arrive at these stations and they're destined for a life of slavery. Uh, many of them have been tricked into the expectation that there's going to be a job and a future um, but the children end up being taken from the station and they end up working either in the city's red light district or in people's homes or in unsafe factories. Um, Others arrive because they've been um, kidnapped um, from their community. Some have been sold by their parents um, who think they're selling them to a better future because they know that they can't provide for their future and so they think they're doing the right um, thing. And it's, that's one of the things that had happened to this girl that we heard about called um, Artie. She was a beautiful uh, 14-year-old girl. She'd, um, she'd been tricked by a man to run away from home and uh, she'd been tricked... Usually it's with the promise of love. It's, it's go to you know, um, Mumbai, which is like the home of Bollywood. You'll be a film star. It's the city of dreams. All your dreams will come true. All this has happened to so many people. Come, 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 come. And um, she arrived in Mumbai. She, it was late at night. Uh, she was on her own. She didn't know what to do. She, she found a sort of corner of the station platform. She sat down with the very few possessions that she had. And, and, and then nearby, a, a group of men began to gather, having spotted her, having seen her, trying to work out uh, when they were going to make their move. But fortunately, um, at this time, there was also a nighttime uh, patrol of Christians from Oasis and the local churches. And really putting their safety on the line here, this is not a safe place to be. This is not, um, this is, this is, this is dangerous work. Um, and uh, the team went and started to chat to um, Artie. They reassured her. It quickly became apparent that she was being tricked. She was about to be trafficked. Um, well, I'd have some young man had literally encouraged her to run away from home with the promise of you know, riches and love. That was the story. Um, 
And so the team were able to take her to a safe place. They were able to make contact with her family. Her family were absolutely distraught. They feared that they'd never see her again, had no idea what had happened to her. And they were able to keep her safe until her mum came to Mumbai to take her home again. And um, again, just light shining in the darkness. Just one case of a child redeemed from a life of just misery. Um, and the staff and the volunteers from the local churches, they've got no idea. They, they know exactly what would have happened to Artie um, had they uh, not been able to uh, scoop her up that night. Um, and they know that it's unsafe. They know that it's dangerous. They know that it's dangerous work. And yet they're compelled by faith to find themselves in this situation, satisfying the needs of the oppressed, that their light might rise in the darkness so that their night will become like the noonday. People who are be becoming known as repairer of broken walls, restorers of streets with dwellings. And again, I can't overstate it, um, just this, this constant sense of being in the darkest and most sickening places I've ever been to. Um, just seeing the local church, seeing followers of Jesus, um, satisfying the needs of the oppressed, and, and seeing that light rising up. Uh, is actually really quite remarkable. Uh, from uh, Mumbai, we went on to Nepal. And uh, on the one hand, to see the work that was being done there to, to, to restore and rebuild the country in the wake of last year's earthquake. Um, but also because Nepal is a key uh, source in the supply chain of sex-trafficked kids uh, into uh, Mumbai. I think it's the eighth poorest country in the world and in the, because of the poverty and also because of the disaster becomes a really prime target for uh, traffickers. Uh, we heard the story of one girl who had found herself in Kathmandu, coming from one of the villages to Kathmandu. She'd gone to a festival because there was a big festival going on in Kathmandu. A, a woman had come up to her and said, um, you look really hungry, you look really thirsty, can I offer you a drink? And she said, no, 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 she said, I'm fine. I said, no, 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 no. You, need, you look like you're really thirsty, just have a drink. So she had a drink. Uh, and the next thing she remembers is waking up on the back seat of a car saying, where am I? And they said, you're in India now. Uh, she was also then sold onto a carpet factory. Um, but her story was, she was able to escape at some point, And she managed to find her way back um, to Nepal. But um, it, was, uh, it, was in these, um, it was in these villages. We were right up in the villages, remote hilltop villages, uh, made New Wine look like a you know, five-star luxury hotel. And um, uh, we met this woman called Ashuri. And uh, Ashuri, she's now, we saw her in the video that we saw earlier on. She's now uh, 23. And she told us the story of how she met Jesus. She, um, she was 16, uh, and she started suffering from terrible stomachache. And uh, she was a Hindu. She was a Hindu. She went to the priest and got the priest to pray for her. Uh, after um, a number of visits to the priest and to the local sort of witch doctor, uh, she was no better. And so when uh, she came across a, a Christian from a nearby church who offered to pray for her, she was just like, yeah, okay, that's fine. Pray for me. And she was prayed for by the Christian. She was completely and instantly healed. And so she gave her life to Jesus right there and then. Uh, when she got back to her village, she's 16, okay? Um, when she got back to her village, she led her mother to the Lord. And uh, she then discovered that there was this other woman in the village who'd actually been a closet secret Christian for a number of years, but was too afraid to let anyone know. 
Um, so Ashuri outed her and um, started to gather together with these, uh, just the three of them. They started to gather together, just the three of them, and Ashuri and the others started telling other people in the village about um, Jesus. Uh, she's now 23, and uh, from the time that she was 16 to 23, she's planted five churches in the village and the neighboring villages. There are over 500 people who are now part of one of those churches, and almost all of them have come to faith through power evangelism. Almost all of them have come to faith through a power encounter um, with Jesus. And um, when we arrived in this village, this church service was at mid-flow, and I thought you'd just like to see a little clip of what um, one of these very remote church congregations worshipping Jesus somewhere up in the Himalayas um, actually looks like, hopefully... Lucky day, isn't it? <laughs> See that? Women on the left, men on the right. Obviously, Ashuri and her church send you all um, their greetings. And what's amazing is not only is it just wonderful that these churches exist in these incredibly remote um, places, but what's wonderful to see is that they are the very center of so much of the outworking of relief and development that's happening in these remote parts of uh, Nepal. Um, after the earthquake, all but two of the homes in the village, this village just here, were severely damaged or destroyed. And um, Ishuri said this, she said, when the earthquake struck, we were meeting at church. We hadn't realized anything had happened at first. Um, we thought it was the Holy Spirit, <laughs> as you do. Um, it was only when we heard people running to the church crying that we realized something was wrong. Outside the church, everything was very dark and the air was filled with dust. Only two homes were left standing. And because they're so remote, with no, there was no outside help going to be arriving for days. It was the church, it was Ashuri and the churches there that were able to mobilize um, local people, their experience of reaching out to the local villages, and their experience that everyone knows about the quality of the work that they're involved in um, meant that it became a center for uh, the response uh, work after the crisis. And, and the first thing that they did as the church was to carry a needs assessment of the community so that when help did arrive, they knew exactly what to do. They knew exactly how to target the, the, the relief and the help and the support effectively with those most in need getting the support and the help first. Just another example of just light rising in the darkness. And what became evident was that in the communities where the church had been mobilized, where the church was present, those communities seemed to be able to deal with the tragedy and the devastation much more effectively. 
And so rather than the work of the church being destroyed by the earthquake, the kingdom of God is being advanced. Not only was the church key in mobilizing relief in the area, they've also been the catalyst. They're the catalyst that's kind of um, working with um, Carnet, an organization, um, the Tier Fund, uh, a partner of Tier Funds on the ground there. Um, they're working with these women to help them set up and start local initiatives and uh, run their own businesses. And I'm not joking, the women in these communities were remarkable. They were absolutely mind-blowing. They were incredibly empowered. They were incredibly released. They're just getting on with the stuff, whether it was church planting or running their businesses. They were just running with it. And we met a group of 12 mums. They were from an incredibly poor uh, community which had been devastated and ravaged by trafficking and it had been largely destroyed by last, last year's earthquake. Uh, between these 12 mums, they had 38 kids. And uh, so few of them, uh, that's them now, I don't know if you can see that, but uh, so few of them have received education that they knew that that lack of education made their families really vulnerable to uh, the sex traffickers because they prey on those in the greatest uh, need and those with, um, in the greatest, with greatest poverty, um, promising this whole future of um, wealth if they got off to cities like Mumbai. But these uh, remarkable women, they've been empowered uh, by Carnet, uh, one of the Tier Fund's partners, and, and they now not only understand the risks of trafficking, but they've also learned how to set up their own businesses and, um, so that they have financial stability to be able to keep their children safe because that's the objective. They're not trying to like, make loads of money because they want to get rich quick. Their objective, I was, we were looking at these business models, and I was going, so how many pigs do you need to sell in order to make the greatest profit? And they'll kind of look at me going, what? <laughs> and it's because the objective wasn't to make the greatest profit. The objective was to make enough money to sustain themselves and their families and keep their families safe. And it was just really fascinating how there's just a completely different mindset. Um, approach to this. But with the help of the local church, uh, Karnet had, had provided business training to the women um, to just to help them understand how to start and to run this uh, small enterprise, um, help them start up this uh, small self-help group where they work together, they save money, save money together, support one another. And these women that we met, they started this uh, pig farm. They started with five pigs. Now they've got ten pigs. Uh, some of the pigs are pregnant, and um, they're hoping to have more pigs. Um, and then they're wanting to diversify into other areas, you know, farming goats and doing uh, different things like this. What was fascinating is um, uh, what one of the women said. She said, um, it feels good to come together as a group. Uh, we didn't have any confidence before. We didn't have any work. This has given us confidence and hope. Uh, and then they said this, but the, the small group hasn't only given them confidence, it's also helped them build stronger relationships together, but also with their families. One woman said, our husbands have given us help with the businesses, and it's also given us confidence in our marriages. Purpose for any income from their business is clear. She said, we want to ensure we have enough money so that our children don't need to travel for work and be vulnerable to trafficking. That's the plan. Um, others in the community have been inspired by these women pig farmers uh, and in turn they started their own small groups uh, one woman had started something farming ginger um, there were another woman uh, she, she had um, started this thing um, selling special vegetables that she grew uh, to local villages she was another 
crazy woman. She, she, um, she was also a Christian. She'd come to faith in Jesus through being dramatically healed. And what she does is she goes to neighboring villages, basically selling vegetables and telling people about Jesus. Um, we met her in this really humble uh, dwelling high up in the, in the mountains. Uh, she had in her very tiny house brought a girl uh, from the neighboring village who was um, pretty ill. And she brought her into her home because she wanted to care for her, nurse her, pray for her, and tell her about um, Jesus. She told us uh, how she'd uh, had a dream uh, a few months before about her going into one of the villages nearby um, and coming to the house and seeing the, the head of the household, seeing the husband, and asking him if it was okay for her to leave these tracts you know, these little pamphlets about Jesus, um, with him. So she was asking his permission before they got left in the household. And in the dream, she, she saw this, this guy say, yes, that's fine. And then um, she said, a few weeks later, she found herself in a neighboring village at a house, knocking on the door, asking the head of the house if she could leave these tracts with him. And he said, yes. And a week later, he and his whole household gave their lives to Jesus. And uh, so she's seeing these incredible things. When we prayed together, we said, what can we pray for? She said, please pray for me. Here she's got nothing. And we're saying, what can we pray for? She says, please pray for me that I can plant churches in all the neighboring villages. She's already led over 150 people to Jesus, and now what she wants to do is move to another village so that she can start and plant a church there. And there are just so many other stories I could tell you. These, um, the ginger farmers, the goat farmers, um, the young kids. The kids from the local school were mind-blown. This is a remote village school. Um, you're, you're not having any lunch. And um, uh, I think this go on a bit further. And these are kids from a remote... Next one, another couple... Um, from a remote village school, here you go, this is Rabina, she's 14, and uh, she is leading the charge on um, running a group of peers in the school to educate all the children in the local communities about the risks of sex trafficking. So these kids are teaching these kids, do you know what I'm saying? Those kids are teaching these kids about the dangers of trafficking. They are um, recognizing the fact that when kids stop going to school, sometimes these kids have an hour and a half, a two-hour walk to school. You at the back, pay, pay attention. A two-and-a-half-hour walk through the, through, the, through the valleys and the hills just to get to school, and then a two-and-a-half-hour walk back. And um, she, Rabina, recognized that when the kids drop out of school, they become much more vulnerable in terms of being targeted for sex trafficking. So she took a group of kids that far out to those homes to encourage those kids who dropped out of school to come back. She managed to get them back into the school and um, again, uh, they're much more protected in terms of uh, what can happen. Um, again and again, everything that we saw, um, we saw so many things, but everything was being wonderfully resourced, wonderfully equipped, uh, behind the scenes, um, so graciously and generously behind the scenes from Tear Fund, uh, to local partners on the ground like Oasis in Mumbai and Kana in Nepal. Um, what was so fantastic for, for me to see and for us, I think, is the fact that it was the local church that was at the heart of the, all the community work that we saw, uh, whether it was in the red light district in Mumbai or in the remote villages of the Himalayas. It was the local church, um, sometimes these very, very, very small local churches 
um, demonstrating that the local church really is the hope of the world. And um, it's just this thing of being, you know, wherever you are, whoever you are, no matter how small or insignificant you feel, if you spend yourself on behalf of the hungry, if you satisfy the needs of the oppressed, your light will shine in the darkness and your night will become like the noonday. You know, you see that as you do that, you will then see that your people, because we're seeing these people, um, will rebuild the ancient ruins. They will raise up the age-old foundations. They are raising up the age-old foundations. They are being called repairer, literally. This is an earthquake-ravaged country. They are literally being called repairer of broken walls, restorer of streets with dwellings. And... Isn't that who we've been called to be as a local church? Isn't that who we all are? Isn't that who we all are? Isn't that the outworking of the prophetic voice to transform our communities that Kate has been talking about last week and the weeks before? Isn't that what that prophetic voice is? Haven't we been called, every single one of us, to be a sent people? Aren't we all missionaries? Every day of the week? To be missionaries in all the places that God has sent us to, in the communities that we live in, that we work in, that we spend our lives in, to see who's helpless so that we can help them. It may not be the red light district in Mumbai. It may not be remote um, earthquake-ravaged villages in Nepal. But isn't there a local need? Isn't there something that we as the church can be at the heart of? Isn't there some local darkness, some local hunger, some local oppression that we as a church can spend ourselves on and satisfy? Aren't there some broken walls in Clapham, in New Malden, in Worcester Park, in Putney, in Southfields, wherever I left off? Wimbledon, Roehampton, what? Where? Earlsfield, definitely broken walls in Earlsfield. Wherever we are, wherever we're from, wherever we live, wherever God has placed us, we come together in a church, a central celebration like this. It's great, but then we get scattered to all of our places because we are missional in those places. That's the point. We don't have to be and do church in those places. We can if we want. But we're missionaries in those places. We're to go and carry light into the darkness of the places that we live. Streets with dwellings. There are bound to be streets in all of those places with dwellings that need to be restored. We've been called to be light in the darkness. So where is the darkness in our, oh my Lord, in our communities that needs the light of the Lord? The clock's really fast. I haven't spoken for weeks. Weeks and weeks and weeks. I mean, I could go on forever and ever. Um, there's a lunch at the yard. If your lunch is burnt, you can come and eat us. Um, let's, I'll finish. Let's pray for ways. Let, let's continue to find ways. Let's be praying for ways. Let's press into the ways in which we as the local church can be missional in all those local communities that the Lord has sent us to. Let's, um, let's find places where we can go and bring his light, bring his hope, bring his restoration, bring his redemption, bring his resurrection. Amen? Amen. Right, I'll shut up. Why don't you stand?